Good morning and welcome to the Mana Podcast, Daily Bread for the Daily Christian. My name is Sam Jeske. I serve as the pastor at Our Shepherd Lutheran Church in Crown Point, Indiana. I'm also one of the regular hosts of this wonderful podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today and being part of this uh, 50 minutes of uh, Friday morning theological discussion. I'm glad you could join us. Um, If you did not get a chance to listen to last episode, I highly encourage you to do so before you really jump in today uh, with us. Um, Because this episode is the second installment in a trilogy of episodes pertaining to um, uh, the nature of truth, canonicity, the reliability and authority of Scripture, it's uh, it being divinely inspired, that it's it's reliable, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, we also talk about uh, the um, we talk about relativism and uh, a couple other things that we're seeing. Uh, um, uh, philosophies of interpretation, for example, we get into that a little bit more in this episode too. But it might be good. Um, to have a little bit of a frame of reference before you really start tuning into this episode. So if you haven't listened to the first one, um, it is titled Star Wars, The Revenge of the Recontextualist. Um, So check that out. Like I said, that's the first of this trilogy. So you should listen to that first. Um, We are, uh, um, these episodes, these three episodes are kind of teeing off of the recent trilogy within the Star Wars universe that has been produced and uh, um, presented by Disney. And uh, my little brother and I, my, my brother Michael Jeske, who is a, uh, an accomplished actor, literary buff, and Star Wars expert, uh, the two of us sit down for the, the total dialogue uh, between the two of us ran about, about two and a half hours. So um, a couple people who were really digging the episode, I, I had... <laughs> I had one person who was wondering uh, why we didn't get into a little bit more theological material in that first 50 minutes. I'm like, well, you got to remember, this was a uh, this was like a, a three-hour dialogue that I had with my brother. So, um, and we got to lay a base. We have to lay a backdrop and a foundation. Um, we had quite a few people who were pretty stoked that we were digging into Star Wars, and they were digging this episode. So, I I hope and pray that uh, you not only enjoyed the last one, but you enjoy this up- upcoming episode too. Uh, it was a lot of fun to record. We um, one other thing, though, uh, before we jump in, uh, I, had a, I had a question about um, some of the language, uh, some words that I used in the last episode. Um, they're, they're words with Greek origin, and so I thought what I would do at the beginning of this episode is just define those words and explain how we were using them so you just kind of have a better understanding going into this next episode. Uh, the three words are pseudepigrapha, uh, canon, or canonicity, and then the last word that we used was autopistia. Um, again, like I said, these are all uh, words that come from the Greek language, um, all lo- used in one way or another in the Bible, too. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through and just kind of define each of those for you. So pseudepigrapha, what do we mean by pseudepigrapha? Well, uh, the word pseudepigrapha is a, is, a, is a compound Greek word. So it's made up of two Greek words, pseudes, which is false or um, uh not genuine, not real, or not reliable, or not true, and then epigraphes, which is um, uh, that would be um, or epigraphe, excuse me, um, that would be um, like a, a superscription or like a heading, or uh, it, that's what it literally means in the Greek. Um, but when you put it together, it's um, 
basically, um, it, what it more or less means is somebody is, or a particular work is being falsely attributed to somebody else, but someone else wrote it. And I used the illustration in that first episode, like where if I were to masquerade as J.K. Rowling and try to write new installments to the Harry Potter universe, but I am not, in fact, J.K. Rowling. And so this addition to the Harry Potter universe would be um, you would refer to as, as pseudepigrapha. I, again, that's a it's a it's a modern analogy, uh, but the what the the reason why it, it works is because um, pseudepigrapha um, we talk about um, in theological discussions today is um, where you have um, false writings that are attributed to. Uh, biblical authors or the apostles, which were not in fact written by the apostles, where the hallmarks on all of you know that they, they were they were written at far later dates. The language isn't consistent um, historically; they were not accepted or they were not um, widely attributed to the actual the alleged author, and so they've been they've um, they've proven themselves uh, to be pseudepigrapha, to be false writings. Um, so um, that's what we meant by that. And uh, if you want to hear the context of how we use that again in the first episode, we were talking about how, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, some people might disagree with me that the recent Star Wars editions, uh, the, the recent Star Wars trilogy in some respects feels more like, um, I used the word fan theory, or and I said modern pseudepigrapha, where you have um, uh, these... Uh, <laughs> And again, I know that this is going to be a hot button issue for some Star Wars fans, but I, 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 I'm not really a big fan of the recent trilogy. It feels more, like I said, of like fan fiction and and um, uh, kind of like a pseudepigraphal author, where somebody's trying to, um, you know, hijack maybe somebody's notoriety. In the case of the biblical writers, they say, "Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm going to write a new book about." Uh, Jesus, and I'm gonna I'm gonna title it the Gospel of Peter, or I'm gonna title it the Gospel of Barnabas, and uh, um, I'm gonna get people to believe that this is legit and genuine and true. Um, in some respects, I kind of feel like the Star Wars, the new Star Wars trilogy, feels that way to me. But again, you can listen more to the next episode uh, to get more on that. Anyway, that's pseudepigrapha. It's um, it is uh, falsely attributed works. Um, where the claimed author is actually not the real author. So somebody else is pretending to be um, an accomplished author or, or contributing author and, and then trying to kind of siphon off their credential so as to present their false work as legitimate. The other word then, or the second word, was canonicity, which comes from the Greek word kanon, which um, literally is like a measuring stick or a rule or a guide um, how it's used in, in I'd say, in how Michael and I were using it was in a broad, um, excuse me, in a broad sense, how you widely see this referred to. And so, for example, if people are a fan, like into comic books or science fiction or stuff like that, um, canonicity or canon refers to like accepted editions or accepted contributions within a within a literary corpus within a, a universe so i believe um you know i'm just pulling up the um wicca or the excuse me the google definition and they they have an example of it uh, talking about shakespeare 
the works of a particular author or artist that are recognized as genuine. So Shakespearean canon would be, you know, Romeo and Juliet, Othello, and so on and so forth. I mean, these are accepted Shakespearean works that fall within Shakespeare's um, uh, things that he th- things that he wrote. Um, so obviously, if I were to write something, <laughs> that would not be part of Shakespearean canon <laughs> because I'm not Shakespeare, uh, as much as I might like to think I am or try to be. <laughs> um, so. Um, and that's how it is within Star Wars too. We were talking about how um, the, uh, but b- prior to the Disney acquisition of the Star Wars universe, there was a bunch of the expanded universe, which which was comprised of books, um, a lot of books, and um, many of which Michael and I were talking about that we read together. But uh, with the acquisition of of the Star Wars franchise, those books, which were once seen and acknowledged as canon with among the fans were then retconned they were no longer canon they were no longer part of the accepted universe um they were now um titled legends um so anyway um and and they did that because they needed to make room for the new installments that disney was now putting forth but um that's how michael and i were using the word so it um quite an accepted definition um, in the case of uh, scripture, when uh, we uh, within when we use that word canonicity, obviously there's some overlap there. Um, but generally, what we're talking about it's um, within the religious community. It is a a set or a, a compilation, or I don't want to say maybe compilation, but a collection is probably a better word to use um, of books. Um, which are seen as uh, cohesive, authoritative, um, and self-authenticating. They are uh, reliable, trustworthy, and true. Um, so, um, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. Like I said in this first episode, we're kind of using Star Wars as a as a as a teeing off point and launching from you know the lesser literature, if you will, into the greater body of work and that being scripture the bible uh so that's canon and then the final word i know quite a long introduction huh but uh you gotta gotta get your definition straight uh the final one um is autopistia was the word that i was that i that i used um and that is a also a greek word that comes from uh it's a compound greek word so auto autos which is um uh self or um in summers, yeah, yeah, self or one or, yeah, it's it's re- it's it's reflexive, or can be reflexive, uh, and then the uh, the other part would be pistis, so that's um, um, faithful, reliable, trustworthy, um, autopistia. The idea being there, it's a self-authenticating nature. So it's a self-authenticating um, nature of the Bible. Books of the Bible, they point to one another as reliable, divinely inspired, written by God through people. Um, so in some respects, uh, kind of like how, you know, if I sit down and I wrote my, my grandmother a letter, uh, the pen isn't writing the letter. I'm writing the letter. I'm using the pen. The pen is the means that I use to write the letter. Ultimately, the um, I'm the one who wrote it. Now, again, that's a very crude analogy. Um, God did not... Um, 
God did not uh, overwhelm the divine authors so as to obliterate their personalities or their memories or their experiences or their the relationships that they had with people. Um, but uh, the content that they wrote was divinely inspired. It was inerrant. It was uh, God's words uh, written through people. Uh, again, and then autopistia, uh, again, just part of the canonicity of Scripture, um, the self-authenticating nature, but then also uh, the self-attestation that all of Scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And I suppose that is a lengthy enough introduction to this episode. Got to make everybody happy, I suppose, huh? Um, but, you know, it, it's also good, uh, again, um, I was just reading a wonderful little article on the um, uh, the the blessing and the what is referred to as the curse of knowledge, where uh, sometimes you just gotta, um, you know, on the one hand, it's great to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of information and a lot of desire to share it, but then there also comes a point where you gotta be able to step back and be able to teach, um, and not assume that everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> So, um, again, for all you listening, thank you so much for tuning in. And, uh, you know, this is episode seven of our uh, Mana podcast series, and we're still very much amateur podcasters on all this stuff. So if you're, if you're listening to this, thank you for making it through seven episodes. And uh, I hope and pray that you join us for many more um, in the days, weeks, months, God willing, years to come. With that in mind, I'm going to now... Uh, um, I'm going to tune out here and we're going to jump on into the second installment of this uh, Star Wars-based trilogy of episodes from the Man of Podcast. Uh, Again, continuing the dialogue between me and my little brother Michael. I hope and pray that you enjoy it. there's a really there's a really crappy dialogue in the second installment of the last jedi where they're ba- you know it's it is a really really painful conversation very poorly written around profiteering um during war times and selling weapons to the highest bidder regardless yeah. of their cause and it's like it is so juvenile not only the yeah. all that whole oh my goodness that whole sequence it, it ends yeah. up just being this huge um protest it's so uh, it's so on the nose that you're pulled out of what's supposed to be a classic a classic action serial and you're just it's just the writers turning what should be a way for people to go out and have a good time into a soapbox and and nobody wants to go to and nobody who watches movies wants to be soapboxed at well, it, well, the other thing, too, is that there's so much, if we're talking The Last Jedi, there's so much writing within, there's so much writing within that movie that just conflicts with itself. On the one hand, they romanticize yeah. and glorify um, General Haldo, this this female protagonist, mm-hmm. punching a, um, you know, a, a resistance ship uh, into light speed, which cuts through a dreadnought and eight other subsequent Star Destroyers. Um, and they romanticize it. They, they do. They do that by. They say that she goes down as a hero. 
that this was they, they refer to it later on as the Haldo maneuver, so they kind of glorify it then. Yeah. But then also in how they they visually uh, render that sequence, there's this. It is probably one of the most visually spectacular scenes in the new trilogy. And I remember seeing it. I thought like, wow, the sound effects and visuals were really cool. But what my yeah. what my dopamine enslaved mind had not caught up with is the not only the fact that they punched a hole through a dreadnought, they had now punched a, a massive hole in the lore of Star Wars and space battles. Yep. <laughs> all because, all for because, yeah, 10, because, 10 milliseconds of a... Because now, yeah. whenever because now whenever you go back to the older movies or you try to make a movie after this, that question is always going to have to be addressed. Why don't you just get a really clunky ship? Like It doesn't even have to be a big ship. It just has to be a fighter size put a droid in it <laughs> yeah. get a basic hyperdrive on it aim it at the enemy uh, and boom it's like why do you... big weapon of mass destruction and i know nothing can counter it yeah i know and i know you don't and it just you know it, it, but anyway you know, but, but see this anyway, is re- and, and this is what i'm saying is where the um there's out of all this you know like um there's a there's a phrase that i heard a lot and it's called head cannon and what head cannon yeah. means in in um in the fantasy literature universe, it's where I, um, in my mind, I selectively pick that which I'm going to accept as canonical or mm-hmm. true installments of a franchise or a universe. And so, mm-hmm. um, I know that there's some, there's some people who do yeah. this with, um, you know, some other sci-fi installments or mm-hmm. fantasy installments, but, I very okay. much have a head cannon when it comes to Star Wars, where there mm-hmm. are uh, certain installments that I have that that I don't, I I in my own head mm-hmm. cannon I don't accept those as part mm-hmm. of the universe because, yeah. um, you know some of this is I, I they don't seem to be, you know what and some yeah. of some of this is and you know what I'll just I'll even say it, um, part of it part of it is I don't like them. Um, but I don't want yeah. it to sound so subjectively trivial that it's just like, well, you yeah. know, it just didn't do that, which I, I wanted to do. But but these these events, um, the stuff, the writing style and the character development, or we'll just say the characters in mm-hmm. general that are presented, yeah. that are rebranded or repackaged from previous mm-hmm. installments, they are mm-hmm. not even a, a grim, shadowy figure of who they once were. They're they're just a they're a completely new mm-hmm. person. This whole thing with canon and headcanon in regards to fictional works, it's more so part of the relationship between writers and the audience. It's part of the give and take of it. And you see this a lot, especially in comics like Marvel and DC with characters like that and mediums like that, where you get retcons and reboots and things starting over and shifting all the time. And a lot of it is good, and a lot of it fixes things. A lot of it doesn't work out. A lot of it makes a bad situation worse. A lot of it extent makes things a lot better. And the thing, and the thing is, like with me, with a medium like that, especially with fiction in general, there's no real concrete set of what you're supposed to like and what you're supposed to accept. Because different different writers will write different characters different ways, and right. one of the great things about having that barrier of fiction with, with you and your work with you and your works that you either write or you consume 
is that the ones that resonate the most with a lot with the most people will always rise to the top, which is why it's which is why you have people still going on about the original trilogy of Star Wars, which is why you have people cherry pick the Star Trek movies because they're of mixed quality. If you ask a Trekkie, which is why the first two Terminator movies, the first two Alien movies. Which is right. why those ones are the ones that people remember the most because it was consistent writing, a lot of imagination, creativity, and a, a sense. And again, it was a sense of adventure. It was a sense of escapism. It was a sense of a com. It was a, it was a sense of common ground. That's something that people from different walks of life they could be at each other's throats over some other issue, but then they sit down together and watch the same movie. And they find a way to connect with it because it doesn't necessarily have to latch on to the popular topics of the day and try and make a speech out of it to say, this is what you have to accept. This is what true people truly believe. And that way, in, fi and that way in fiction, it's, it lends itself a little better to subjectivity and people taking different experiences from it. But people remember a lot more when you don't act like the, when you don't treat them like they're stupid, and you yeah. write something that's consistent of good and of good quality. Yeah, and I, I was about to say that I think some of the you know there there are you can say prolific things in a very nuanced way, but when you don't do that, you're either assuming your your audience is stupid or you're mm -hmm. you are accusing or you're basically calling them stupid by talking to them in such a mm -hmm. stupid way. <laughs> or you're relying on the underlying themes of your work to tr to compensate for a lackluster narrative. Yeah, and, and there's and and that's and that's a really good point. I I guess in in one thing, you know, in this this talk about canon and non-canon or headcanon, um I'm going to pivot here a little bit and kind of, mm -hmm. you know, we've we've laid out um not only um some of uh current cultural um uh when it comes to our we'll be we'll say current cultural behaviors when it comes to discussing truth um or the nature of um um you know objective and subjective mm -hmm. and um whether there are such thing as objective moral values and duties or are they all subjective or when it comes down to um you know um you know, good and evil uh, are these things objective or are things are these subjective? Mm -hmm. Are these? Um, but, but anyway, um, they. Um, one of the one of the reasons that we're kind of talking about this is namely, um, obviously, we, we kind of preface this episode talking about um, the discernment of truth, mm -hmm. and um, one thing that. Um, especially living in a post-Christian society that you do see is, is a, a general uh, throwing out the window of anything that, that may remotely come across as a Christian value or something that, um, which maybe people will dispassionately or pejorative, pejoratively label as old fashioned or antiquated yeah. um and uh, and it's, you know things that may have been accepted 
as self-evident or true. Now everything has to be subject to scrutiny again. Now I'm not saying, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying, um, you know, just assume that everything around you is, is true or, or, you know, like, no, of course not. you know, for, or, so for example, a, a, a great case in point um, is a lot of stuff that's going on in the media right now where mm-hmm. the, the big buzzword is fake news and, mm-hmm. and Snopes and fact checking. And mm-hmm. um, you have news outlets fact checking one another. So on the one hand, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's good. There's, you know, there's a desire to, to gravitate to objective um, news reporting, but on the other hand, it's just like it, it's it's how not. That, how do I spin this in order to get my yeah organization's correct proper views across? So it, yeah, so and like that's you're, like you're saying, it's a lot of um, it's a lot of pushing the, the argument of my truth versus the, the truth. truth yeah so what ends it what if this is is it's, it's a it's a it's an obliteration of the distinction between facts and values mm-hmm. so um this is actually a great if we're going to talk christian apologetics this is actually one of the great points that the christian apologist the defender of the christian faith should not relent on is um when it comes down to um you know um the the theist or we'll say the christian um, we affirm an objective reality. We affirm that there are objective moral values and duties, that there, is, there are ises and there are oughts in the world in which we live. But ises are not oughts. An is is not an ought. A fact is not a value. Um, values are not facts. Um, nature can, I can quantify in my observance of nature, I can, I can discern facts, but I cannot see values. These are things that I am ascribing to them, and the question is: is why do, why why do I have these values, or why why is it better um, for me to take care of people, or why is it better for me to love my neighbor as myself than it would be to, to take advantage of people or to hurt or harm yeah. those in my life, um, you know? And so, um, one when it comes down to um, especially. Um, a corpus of truth, and now, now I'm going to shift gears maybe a little bit more uh, uh, mm-hmm. assertively here, to the Bible. I think some people okay. would like to play the headcanon game with the Bible, or you've yeah. you've seen, there is a, you used the buzzword before, recontextualization. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of efforts for people to take the words of Scripture um, and recontextualize them to support mm-hmm. or push whatever narrative they want. So, yeah. And this is where, you know, you, you talked about, so, I mean, and you would do the same thing when it comes down to reading, say, the works of Shakespeare or, mm-hmm. um, and maybe by no means am I saying that, you know, my reverence towards the works of Shakespeare versus the Bible yeah. are to be equal, but <laughs> there is something to be said of, I would like to, when it, when you're reading an author, I think one of the objectives, especially when they're, they're presenting thought provoking things is, and maybe things in a cryptic way is you are you're wanting to understand what the author intended. You're you're wanting to kind of get in his or her head, so to speak, or put yourself mm-hmm. in his or her shoes, his or her circumstances, and try and understand what what the author may have been going through or thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And so what we're talking about here is um, when we're talking about as we read or interpret the Bible, the the word that we use is hermeneutics, which is a fancy word for the philosophy of interpretation as we mm-hmm. go about 
interacting with the Bible. Um, Mm -hmm. Just as you kind of, you kind of talked about, um, you know, we kind of been, uh, you know, elucidating to the the hermeneutics of uh, engaging Star Wars, so to speak, or now, now we're kind of pivoting. We're talking about the hermeneutics Mm -hmm. when it comes to approaching the scriptures. Uh, Mm -hmm. We talk about a, a historical grammatical method when we interact with the Bible. Um, uh, we do not, uh, what, what we, let me, let me phrase it positively first before we deal, deal with, uh, negatively positively. What we want to do is we want to go back to the historical context of when it was written, who wrote it, who was the audience who received it? Uh, what were the circumstances or the scenario or situation? Um, not only that the author finds himself in as well as the audience, but the, the, the reason that um, warranted this letter or this book or mm-hmm. this particular prophecy or the, this psalm, this song that was written, um, uh, uh, maybe the genre, the style of the letter, of the book, of, of the song. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the other thing that you want to look at is, um, and I'm already kind of alluding to this, is the grammatical method. So this is a a discipline where we go back to the original language of the text. We're going back to the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the three languages that the Bible were written in, contrary to those who say the KJV, the King's James Version, was the very first Bible ever written. Turns out that's not the original translation, or it's not the, that's not the original Bible. <laughs> that is a translation mm-hmm. of translations, contrary mm-hmm. to all those uh, um, <laughs> um, only the KJV espousers um and maybe that's a lesson or that's a podcast episode for another day um Mm -hmm. but um one thing that we don't do when it comes to engaging um the bible is we do not we do not ask the question what viable interpretations can i massage into and thus pull out of the text i'm not asking that question um, that, that is a faulty hermeneutic. That's an inappropriate way, um, a faulty way to approach Scripture. Um, uh, the would you, bi- would, sure, go ahead. Would you say that, um, that, would you say that the famous um, account that um, Thomas Jefferson is known for cutting passages out of his own personal Bible because he himself could either could not reconcile them or didn't think that they were important or whatever. Would you say that that's an example of what you're talking about? Yes. Um, so for example, um, Thomas Jefferson, what, what, what Michael's alluding to is what's referred to, I believe as the Jefferson Bible where Thomas Jefferson goes through, I think it might've just been the new Testament. I don't know if he did the entire Bible or not, but he basically cut out, segments that he either could not rationally understand or, or things that he felt deviated away from the Jesus in his mind and more or less presented a Jesus who is a moral altruistic teacher, a wise philosopher, you know, philanthropist, do-gooder, no different than like a, a, a Middle Eastern Confucius, a Jewish Confucius. Um, but, uh, but here's the Which thing. Which is the attitude that a lot of people try to ascribe to 
the Bible today, even though Correct. people people say that all I know, all I need to know about the Bible is the is the golden rule, love thy neighbor. Like you're missing the point. Right. We don't it's, hold we don't hold on to these teachings because they're innately good things to do. Right. They're because we don't know objectively what is good. Someone else had to come down and show that to us. Yeah. Someone else had to bring that into us. And, and we walked away from it. Right. And 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 I suppose at this point there's probably a good there's probably a good uh, it would be wise for us to 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 throw in there also that God's um, God tells us, especially in the book of Romans, that his law is written on our hearts and our conscience bear witness to this. But there's a problem, though, and Paul follows up with that immediately. Sometimes our consciences defend us and other times they um, mm-hmm. they accuse us. Um, so, um, And this it, ties into the fact that moral discussions in the modern world get so bogged down in, well, that's just your opinion or correct. that's just how you perceive it. And that, yes. that leads back to my truth versus the truth. Yep, People and see, love to use subjectivity as the, as, the, as the stopping point to say, okay, you can't say what you just said. Yep. Um, another reason, uh, exactly what you were, well said, I can't help but think of sections of Scripture. I, I brought up Timothy, um, and, one, and, you, and you know this Bible passage. We're looking at Timothy chapter 2, um, um, verse uh, excuse, yep. Uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter three. Excuse me, verses fourteen through seventeen. So, just uh, for setting backdrop for those who um, might be a little rusty uh, on their New Testament, or just aren't familiar with the New Testament, or who's Paul and who's Timothy. Um, Paul was once a persecutor of the Christian faith. Um, he was brought to faith by um, God Himself, by Jesus, as he was on on the road to Damascus actually to persecute and arrest more Christians. And uh, Jesus calls and commissions him to become a missionary for the Christian church. And Paul does just that. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul's actually in, he's in jail or he's in prison. I should, um, uh, you know, his actual imprisonment circumstances, I'm not entirely sure, but he, he does say he's in chains. Um, very, and the tenor of his, of his letter to Timothy very much suggests that he is nearing the end of his life. It is said that Second Timothy is kind of his last will and testament letter to his son in the faith. But here are the instructions that he gives Timothy in Second Timothy chapter 3. We're looking at verse 14 here. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, Paul already is saying, um, what you have is reliable, trustworthy, and true. And hang on to it, because it is reliable, trustworthy, and true. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which have a utility. Obviously, God is working through them, right? The Holy Spirit. These Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the real big, here's the clincher. All scripture is God-breathed, meaning all books of the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible um, are God-breathed, meaning God-inspired. Um, human authors, but a divine author. Um, so it's kind of like, um, you know, I might sit down and grab a pen and write Michael a letter, but it's not the pen that's writing the letter. Yeah, a pen was used to write the letter. But ultimately, it's me who's writing the letter. 
It's no different than when it comes to the Apostle Paul writing this letter to Timothy. He was nothing more than the pen. Um, yes, Paul's personality and his experiences are certainly there, but this is nevertheless a divinely inspired, inerrant letter because God is the one who's ultimately holding the pen. It is God who's writing it, hence why we say God breathe, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God is thoroughly or may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So again, underscoring the usefulness and importance of all of Scripture. Why is it useful and important? Well, it's God-breathed and God is working through it. And how much of it? All of it. Um, why? And, you know, you know, if you look at in 1 Timothy, this, this all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, Paul, um, in his first letter to Timothy, says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Um, mm -hmm. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and arguments that result in envy, quarreling, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction uh, between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth. There we go. Robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. Uh, without getting into the contextual specifics of who Paul is referring to. There were some false teachers who Timothy was tasked with um, addressing and combating. But the thing is, though, is that if Timothy is to address false teachers, he it assumes that he has been equipped with a sound, sufficient, all-reliable source of truth mm -hmm. and doctrine, which, yeah. Paul says, you have been given the word of God. Um this is why Jesus then says in his high priestly prayer, and um, John, um, he says in, is it John 16 or John 17? Oh, man. Shame on me for not knowing this off the top of my head. Um, I, th I think most of us will forgive you. Well, it's it's the section of Scripture where, where Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, and he says... Sanctify them by your truth, your word. There it is, John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth, uh, by the truth, your word is truth. So notice it's not a truth. Sanctify them by a truth. It's sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. The same um, truth that Jesus himself asserts himself to be. Jesus does not say, I am a way, a truth, a life. He says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Exactly. The definite article. self and pistia meaning kind of like proven genuine or true so self-authenticating the um, self-authenticating nature of the bible so we talked about canonicity um, within a corpus um, just as there, there is a cohesiveness say to the works of harry potter um, mm -hmm. a singular author sat down and wrote all these things there is also in an internal cohesiveness to the 66 books of the Bible. They self-authenticate. So, for example, um, the letters of Peter 
authenticate that the letters of Paul are scripture. Um, mm-hmm. The letters of John or the, the, the letters of John self-authenticate each other. Um, the Gospel of John authenticates that the books of Moses, so that's the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, mm-hmm. and Deuteronomy, um, as well as the Psalms and the Prophets, those are otherwise referred to as the Tanakh, the, the Torah, the Ketuvim, the other writings, uh, and then the Navim, which, um, uh, which, are, uh, which is Hebrew for prophets. These yep. are... Um, those are upheld as scripture. So there is this inter um, uh, auto canonization, you might say, where um, books of the Bible point to one another as mm-hmm. biblical and divinely inspired. Um, and they directly cite each other, especially when specific prophecies are being fulfilled. Correct. In the moment. Yep. So there is a there is an internal cohesiveness within scripture, um, and it's and it isn't just in when, when one author says, just as so-and-so said, they're also uh, singular in message. There is a singular figure who um, um, Christ Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, his saving work, that is the central axle upon which all of Christianity and the Bible turns. Mm-hmm. All scripture converges on Christ. The Old Testament pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. The New Testament highlighting and pointing back to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and how he is the Son of God and fulfillment of God's promises. Um, How he is um, our Savior from sin, death, and hell itself. And so when it comes to Scripture and the Bible, I can't play a headcanon game. I can't cherry pick books of the Bible and say, I like book A. I don't like book B. I can't be Thomas Jefferson and say, you know, I like it when Jesus um, chews out those self-righteous Pharisees. But as soon as Jesus has something to say about um, homosexuality, um, or as soon as Jesus has something to say about adultery, sex outside of marriage, or as soon as Jesus affirms words in Genesis when it talks about um roles of men and women or gender, um, suddenly that's not the Jesus that I'm a big fan of. And I, and I, um, you know, it's like, I like to, there's this temptation for people to selectively cite Jesus when he agrees with you. Um, except Jesus himself has famously said that, um, because of him, family units will be divided amongst themselves because of faith in him or lack of faith in him, because He's not He's not here to. He, he didn't come down to to ne- to necessarily always bring unity. He he cited him. He said himself that he was partially down here to bring division. Well, yeah, because, the, the and word because not 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 more so because of what he himself did, but more so because he knows, and we should know too that that he doesn't that Jesus never minced words. He always told people the truth. And not everybody wanted to hear that. And that is the nature of truth. The nature of truth. Someone is right and someone is wrong. Or there is right and wrong. There is going to be offense. So, for example, um, my sinful nature, it abhors the idea that I am a, a sinner who is only deserving of God's wrath and punishment. And apart from Jesus as my Savior, and apart from... Um, 
faith in him, um, I will not spend eternity um, in God's heaven with a right reconciled relationship with him. Uh, instead, I would, I would be, I was, I was doomed to experience eternal estrangement from God and his goodness for eternity in hell. Um, that is what I deserved. The wages of sin is death. Um, you know, which is offensive to those who feel entitled to God's love. Um, the phrase, I love dropping this on people, and I need to hear it myself all the time. God doesn't love you because of who you are. God loves you because of who he is. 